Welcome to our event on the avoidable U.S.-China war, a conversation with Secretary Condoleezza Rice and the Honorable Kevin Rudd. This is an amazing audience. We had over 900 people sign up for this, and we understand there's a wait list. We're starting to let people in. A warm welcome to our friends at Hoover Institution and Asia Society. I'm Margaret Conley, the executive director of our Northern California Center. Our chair, Gary Reichel, board and team really appreciate you being with us today and supporting our mission of navigating a shared future, which under Kevin's leadership in the current state of the world is keeping us pretty busy. <laughs> this is the fourth of eight events of our Seeking Truth Through Facts U.S.-China program series. We've covered the CHIPS Act and its impact on Silicon Valley, semiconductors in tech, and disrupted supply chains. We have events coming up on research collaboration and the Belt and Road Initiative. All of these events are leading up to our fifth annual Future of US-China Conference in January. We are thrilled to host this event here in the heart of Silicon Valley and tech innovation, perhaps a bright spot for our shared future. Hoover Institution will always be special to us. It's been wonderful to work with your team here. Secretary George Schultz was our honorary chair and founding uh, since the founding of our center 25 years ago. Shortly after his centennial birthday at our U.S.-China conference, he did a joint interview with him and Dr. Henry Kissinger. So it's fitting that we follow those two giants with the two giants we have now on stage. In a moment, Secretary Rice will moderate a discussion with Kevin. There'll be time for audience Q&A. If you have a question, please raise your hand. If Secretary Rice calls on you, wait for a microphone to be brought to you. Please introduce yourself before you ask your question. We really appreciate succinct questions. The program will end in an hour at 5.30 p.m. And afterwards, Kevin will sign a few books in the pavilion outside. This event is on the record. We are recording and the video will be posted online. Please take a moment to silence your phones. And now, please join me in welcoming the director of Hoover Institution, a professor at Stanford University, and the 66th US Secretary of State, Condoleezza Rice. Well, thank you very much. And uh, to this wonderful audience, I think we're going to have a great time hearing from the inestimable uh, Kevin Rudd, uh, former Prime Minister of Australia and uh, now shepherding the Asia Society. I just want to say I want to thank uh, the Asia Society for the long uh, friendship and colleagueship that we've enjoyed and look forward to many more opportunities. Uh, Margaret, thank you very much. Uh, now, uh, as, as we've just said, there will be Q&A at the end. Uh, I am a professor, so if you don't raise your hand, I will call on somebody. I believe on cold calling. Uh, but I suspect we'll have plenty of time, or plenty of questions, and uh, we'll try to leave the last uh, several minutes to do so. Uh, but I have the, um, the catbird seat now, so I get to start by asking, um, and I will call you Kevin, and of course, because you'll call me Condi. Um, I have the, the um, opportunity to ask Kevin some questions, but I first want to advertise the book, The Affordable. Be sure to, to get the book. <laughs> there are free steak knives with every, yes, yes. every book. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start by uh, talking with the audience, introducing the audience to the man of the hour in China, Xi Jinping. Mm. He's about to have a, a big month ahead of him. 
Uh, he's been planning this for quite a long time. Uh, talk to us about him. Uh, what is he driven by? What does he want? And then I want to ask some specifics about, uh, from your book, uh, very well put about the view of the U.S. Uh, and his China dream. But why don't you start with, who is he? What's he driven by? Good. Well, thank you, Condi, for being with, with us today in this conversation. And all of our friends at Hoover, it's great to be back at Stanford. That's a great institution, great university, and we're pleased to collaborate with you through the Asia Society. Xi Jinping, I've probably had, I don't know, uh, eight or nine one-on-one -on -one conversations with him over the years. And since I've left office, uh, a number of small group conversations. So it's not a foolproof mechanism to understand the personality of a leader of a major country, but it gives you some insights, I think. I think the first thing that strikes you between the eyeballs uh, with Xi Jinping is his enormous level of self-confidence. There is something I never sensed, for example, in Hu Jintao, um, reflected in the fact that in every conversation I've ever had with Xi Jinping, I never saw him use a note. He either has an eidetic memory, which is just an ability to absorb the script, uh, which, have, as you know, if you've been in the business for a while, you can, just through repeat. Um, but his ability to move flexibly from subject to subject, uh, I found, uh, unlike his two sets of predecessors, Deng never used a script, um, but Jiang Zemin and uh, Hu Jintao did. So self-confidence. Secondly, and as so I would chat to him, when he was in Australia, I used to chat to him in Chinese when he was visiting. I'm a Chinese speaker for all my sins. There are many sins. The, um, and uh, he has a profound interest in his own history of China and the history of the Communist Party. He's steeped in his institutional and national history. And partly, this partly disagrees with much of the analysis in China about the guy, which says that he's not sophisticated or well-educated and all the rest of it. Not in my experience. His ability to move subtly across questions of party history, national history, and some world history was quite impressive. Um, and I think thirdly, what I don't think I'm imposing this as a post facto memory, but you know when you meet folks in political life, and national political life, who you know have a defined sense of absolute mission, he's one of them. Um, I'm reluctant to use the term man of history, uh, because we know what that refers to in the current international political environment, um, who's a man whose initials are V and P. Um, and, uh, but this guy sees himself as a man of history, pushing the country forward against a defined plan for the future. No sense of humour, um, despite my best efforts over multiple glasses of Australian red wine. <laughs> Uh, all sorts of things which I found enormously amusing that I was saying but, <laughs> but didn't elicit a ha, ha, ha from uh, the General Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah. So that's the guy that I've encountered. Right. You said that he has a deep sense of history. Mm. Uh, one thing that I often encountered uh, with some of my counterparts, uh, people in, in the, on the Russian side, was that it was a deep sense of history but it was a warped sense of history. <laughs> Uh, a distinctive sense of history. 
brought up in the Chinese system. Uh, would you say that it is an accurate sense of history? How would you characterize his sense of history? Um, twofold. Party history, which is its own beast in the Chinese system, they call it Dang Li It's like this received set of orthodoxies, like the evolution of the CPSU in, uh, in the Soviet Union. Um, a reasonably orthodox reflection within a capacity for some honesty about stuff that went wrong. Uh, on national history, obviously, through the prism of party history, but still able to deal with challenges and criticism, like, you know, when I'd uh, uh, reflect on the excesses of the Cultural Revolution and, and the Great Leap Forward and that sort of stuff. Like, these are not happy episodes in the history of the Communist Party. And Xi Jinping... Uh, on the public record on China says we don't discuss these things anymore because they give rise to what he describes as historical nihilism, mm -hmm. which is uh, so many problems in the party's history that it undermines belief in the party's mission. But you can challenge him on it, but no, his rendition is relatively orthodox. World history, um, because he doesn't read English and doesn't speak English, um, it will always be done through the prism of stuff uh, written in the Chinese lens. But what he does read and the other leadership read is Chinese translations of the stuff you and I write in the international media, probably you more than me, actually. So, um, um, And that I find interesting because that acts as a, I won't say a corrective, but at least there's an opportunity to get through because uh, it... It's what we foreign barbarians think mm -hmm. and write and therefore can be observed as such, open brackets. Of course, it's wrong, close brackets, but at least it's there to be read. Well, if he's a man of history, um, what does he want his legacy to be at the end of his, uh, at the end of his life? Let's, let's not confine it to his political life. What does he want history to say about him? Well, his mother is 96. Uh, his father died when he was 89. His father was a member of the Politburo, Xi Jinping. And uh, I think Xi Jinping, uh, having put uh, the pork dumplings down, has decided that he probably can live quite a while. Um, so, uh, and so when we talk about him being reappointed at this uh, party Congress for another five years. Realistically, once you've purged as many people as Xi Jinping has purged in the last 10 years, you cannot leave office. You've got to stay there because otherwise they're going to come and get you. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, authoritarian systems mm -hmm. are like that. Mm -hmm. uh, when I lost office in Australia, they didn't come, up, come after me and get me, though some of them wanted to. And uh, <laughs> so it's slightly different. So therefore, when you say when he leaves the scene, which in my view is when he dies. So I think barring an act of God, this guy is going to be general secretary or chairman of the Communist Party, one formulation or another, at least until the late 2030s. Mm. He's now 69. By the time you finish the 23rd Party Congress in 2037, he'll be a tender age of 84 almost young enough to run for President of the United States. <laughs> the, uh, see, I can say that. I'm not a Republican. Yeah. So, uh, the, uh... That's a bipartisan comment. <laughs> <laughs> well taken. So what does he want his legacy to be, given that he's going to be around for quite a while? 
My judgment is as follows. Three core things. One, uh, to preserve the party as a revolutionary party of control within China and resist any forces predisposed towards removing the party's power or reducing it. He's looked at the collapse of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. He's terrified by it and therefore will not compromise on it. So his, his view, as reflected in a conversation which he had with a friend of mine once, which was he pointed to his veins and said, the party is in our veins. So anyone who's got a view that there is a, a nice transition to a happier form of political pluralism, I think they need to get real. Number two, I think he does want uh, to China uh, to have become at least a bigger economy than the United States and to be on the road to becoming the preeminent regional and global power over America. Um, and I think when you look carefully at the texts, that's quite clear. It's not said in those explicit terms, but when you look at the official dogma, which is Zhonghua the great rejuvenation of the Chinese people. It means bringing it back to China's global position as it was before we foreign barbarians arrived in the first place, and that is as the preeminent power. And the last thing is Taiwan. He wants that under his belt, and that is part and parcel uh, of, the, um, of the mission statement. Whether he secures it or not depends not just on him, but on all of us as well. I want to come back to uh, Taiwan in, in a moment, but um, if, he, if he wants to supersede the now uh, dominant power, the United mm. States, well, how does he view the United States? Uh, is it that uh, he can do this, China can do this, because the United States is a declining power? We always talk about a rising, power, a rising China. Does he see the United States as a declining United States and therefore there's an opening? Mm. Or are there things that he has to do to make certain that uh, the United States declines? How does he see, how does he see us? He's uh, on the question of how does China achieve that national goal, he sees the responsibility is lying in two baskets. What do they do? Which is continue to fuel the growth of the economy but that's where he has a problem because if he continues to fuel the growth of the economy through a, through a continuing um, vitality of the Chinese private sector, which is what's got China where it's got to so far, then by reimposing ideological controls over the Chinese private sector, which is what he's doing and has been doing for the last five years, you therefore collapse Chinese growth. Well, when I say collapse it, radically reduce it. Average 6 or 7% down to maybe 2 or 3%. So that's his basket of what he needs to do. And based on that, to continue to radically invest in the Chinese military and to radically invest in China's technological self-reliance across all the um, uh, semiconductor categories down to three and six millimetres, uh, nanometres, not millimetres. Now, on the, on the United States, which is it takes two to tango in great power relations, um, if you read the ideological literature, which these guys produce, uh, not just in the more formal speeches, but the stuff that you dig for in the party's theoretical journals, there's exciting things you read on a weekend when you should be reading a good novel, uh, but nerds like you and me, that we read this other stuff. 
um, the 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 consistency and the resonance of the language about the rise of the East and the decline of the West, uh, and about the world's growing multipolarity, uh, and about uh, the irresolvable problems in the American democracy, uh, the uh, systemic divisions which now prevent the Americans from acting on the global stage effectively. A house divided unto itself cannot stand, to paraphrase that great American president. Um, the conclusion in their system is that structurally the United States and the West is in structural decline and that an alternative development model is form of what I call state capitalism. Um, increasingly, however, a Marxist form of state capitalism is the alternative model, development model, not just for China but for the world. So it's this cocktail of, I think, an irrational self-belief in... Uh, the inherent success of uh, his new development model, which is highly state-controlled, unlike under Jiang, Hu and Deng. And secondly, I think an equally irrational view that this country is incapable of continued reinvention, either politically or economically, which the last 100 years demonstrates that you've been remarkably good at. Uh, to use a good... Uh Marxist term, you just described for him, though, a set of contradictions mm. because uh, he, in effect, wants to uh, outpace the U.S. economy. Uh, and yet, do you think he understands that the move towards statism, uh, toward the, uh, the, the killing of the goose that laid the golden egg among mm. the private companies, uh, that the bringing down of, of sanctions, the decoupling uh, the fact that the United States, he gave that speech when he said, I'm going to surpass the United States and all of these frontier technologies, mm. and that was kind mm. of a Sputnik moment for the United States. Mm. Does he understand uh, that there's a contradiction between the path that he's on and the desire to get to uh, an economy uh, that will uh, outgrow that of the United States? Do you think he, does he get that? Does he listen to anyone about that? Because another way... To learn this would be to listen, for instance, to a Li Kaisheng who might make that argument. That's true. I'm glad you used the word contradictions because I've had to, I've just completed some research project on Xi Jinping's ideology and uh, it's enough to drive a man to drink because um, <laughs> I've had to reread dialectical uh, materialism, yeah, reread yeah. historical materialism, reread um, uh, the... Uh, uh, intersection of opposites, their resolution through contradiction and struggle. And I all once that read stuff. the phenomenology of mind in order to understand My this. My God, a long time. I'm sorry yeah. about that. It takes a long yeah. time, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, have you recovered yet? Uh, I, not really. Because uh, <laughs> I've got to say, uh, wrapping your head around this entirely different systemology, and it's not just, um, it's not just a conclusion about the future course of history, which is historical determinism, it's also uh, a rolling epistemology for understanding what's happening now right. in this world of contradiction and struggle. So the irony is, yes, he sees himself and prides himself in being a numero uno dialectician. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
not something you'd boast about your local football club, but uh, a, a first-class dialectician. The intersection of progressive and reactionary forces, contradiction, resolution through struggle, and you move on to inexorable advance to socialism and communism, probably by next Thursday night, at least here in Stanford. That's kind of the worldview. Yeah. But notwithstanding that, um, you have this puzzling contradiction about his contradictions. Uh, which is the one you've just alluded to. Okay, so I'm Xi Jinping. I'm looking at Jack Ma. I'm looking at Tencent. I'm looking at this bright, brilliant, breezy, innovative, world-beating tech sector, tech flattens, Pintai Jinji, out there. Um, and rather than saying, whoo, go China, he's seeing threat, threat, and threat uh, because, A, they're controlling too much data in his view. Uh, B, they're all billionaires. Hmm. increasingly problematic because they become alternative status figures within the country other than party leaders and political leaders. Um, and C, if this private sector continues to grow and it's now 61% of GDP, then wither the party or the party withers. Now, so he's got all that in the back of his head. So he thinks he's being a great dialectician by saying, I'm going to head this off at the pass. Okay, I'm ahead of the contradiction. Okay, I've spotted where struggle must occur, and I've um, and I'm uh, ahead of the curve in doing so. That's but awesome. his failure in doing that is to he has no intrinsic understanding of what a financial market is, what a uh, normal uh, market in the economy is. This is not part of his ideological national security <clears throat> political training. So whereas he thinks he's actually acting dialectically to prevent the private sector from ultimately marginalising the party, he is killing the goose that gold, laid the golden egg because he doesn't comprehend it. Does he have people who come in and say, Xi Dada, Uncle Xi, um, um, this is not wise? I think there are one or two who could say that. But the evidence to date is there's been in this shift to the left on economic policy, which has now been underway for five years since the 19th Party Congress, in all the areas that you listed before and a few others. The evidence to date is there's been precious little course correction despite the slowing of growth. I think they may find, by the way, as a footnote to that answer, they may find a way after the Congress and before the next National People's Congress in March to begin to experiment with the current Hong Kong model of exiting zero COVID. But that's quite a separate matter to the other ideological shifts to the left between private sector and public sector, which I think have been much bigger forces in slowing the economy. Let's go to US-China relations. Um, when you were prime minister, um, I was uh, secretary of state uh, for a short period of that. And uh, the prospect for a manageable U.S.-China relationship looked considerably better. I think mm. all of us thought we were managing through a relationship. We had an integrationist narrative about China. I remember mm. Bob Zellick, my deputy, giving the uh, responsible stakeholder speech, which apparently the Chinese couldn't translate and spent a lot of time trying to figure out what the heck that was. But nonetheless, mm. that's what we Medium thought. Medium rare is the way it came out. <laughs> is that right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I remember very well uh, asking the Chinese to chair the six-party talks uh, oh. with North Korea. And to be fair, they, they did a reasonably good job of doing so. And so 
I don't really want to be one of those, you know, old folks who looks back and say, oh, those were the days, but those were kind of the days. Hmm. So uh, what happened? How did we get to where we are now when you have to write a book titled uh, The Avoidable War? I think three big things have changed since the good old days. And, uh, and I'm not critical of American policy makers in the past. Bob Zelek's a good friend of mine. I remember sitting in his office in the State Department when he was your deputy and he showed me the draft of the stakeholder speech. And I thought it was a good, I thought it was a good speech. Mm-hmm. I didn't think of the translation problem. Um, <laughs> I should have, but I didn't. So what's changed since uh, uh, that has given rise to the need to write a book like this? In a matter of really... A decade. One, the change in the balance of power. It's an objective fact in international relations um, that if you no longer have power equilibrium and you have an emerging large disequilibrium, um, that this of itself is destabilizing. Mm -hmm. Um, And China's self perception, plus those of us who objectively measure these things, says. Militarily, economically, technologically, they're much more powerful than they were. And their foreign policy influence in the world off the back of the gravitational pull of the Chinese economy. And that is really turbocharged ahead. The Chinese conclusion, but I think partly the objective reality, is the balance of power has moved more in their direction, uh, was moving more in their direction. Number two, Xi Jinping is a different leader. I'm from an old-fashioned school of international relations theory which says that leaders have agency. Leaders actually make a difference. President Bush made a difference, as we were discussing earlier today, Condi, when he uh, did what he did to rein in the then Taiwanese president, Chen Shui-bian, who was taking a very dangerous course in the direction of Taiwanese independence in that period between 2000 and 2008. So leaders make a difference can make a difference. Now, Xi Jinping is, uh, in his own worldview, there to make a difference, to adjust the status quo, to move China towards the status that we just referred to before. And if you want, um, and if you want an example of how, how he's just doing that, look at this campaign of island reclamation in the South China yeah. Sea. So it's quite remarkable. Uh, but that's just one of a dozen illustrations. What's the third factor? third factor is that since... H.R. McMaster uh, did the national security strategy uh, in late, I think it was November of 17. Uh, The United States symbolised there and then that the United States was not going to be a passive player in this process as Beijing was seeing it, and it would begin to react. And that acquired bipartisan support one way or the other, Mm -hmm. you know, Two political parties in this country may disagree about what you call this thing. But basically, strategic competition is the uh, the framework, uh, as McMaster correctly concluded at the time. Um, and so really, these are the three structural factors, I think, which have changed. And that's why we're now in a state of profound flux. Mm-hmm. But there is therefore no substitute framework for managing a relationship whose fundamentals have therefore changed. You've had to manage relationships, though. Can you give us a strategic framework for how we might get to a place that... I'll I'll put it this way, um, and then I'll ask you about the rest of the world. 
it feels right now as if it's consistently and constantly on edge, yeah. the U.S.-China relationship. And I am uh, a veteran of uh, the April 2001 incident in which the Chinese downed an American um, reconnaissance craft, EP3. Uh, yeah. EP3, on Hanan Island. They kept our crew for seven days. For three days, we couldn't get them to talk to us. And I actually found my counterpart at a barbecue in Argentina and got the Argentines to get him to a telephone so that we could talk. That's how the communication shut off at that moment. It's good you're a superpower. You it, could track him down. We Argentina. could track him down through somebody else. <laughs> I think, well done, Uncle yeah, Sam. Yeah, well, we were, we were very grateful it. to the Argentines for doing that. But, but I mean, that, that was a kind of dangerous yeah. moment. But the overall context of the relationship was one of uh, management, uh, we'll get through this. I, I wonder if you had that kind of incident today, given the kind of fraught nature of the relationship, how well we would get through it. So if I'm right in that we're, and you mm. called it in flux, but I would say in flux in a pretty dangerous place, mm. uh, you would think that we want to get back to something that's more manageable. What's the recipe for doing that? Well, the reason I wrote this book is because I've been thinking about this for some years. I started uh, when I left politics in Australia, which is code language for losing an election, by the way. The, uh, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> the, uh, um, uh, I came to the United States, spent a year at Harvard, and I began thinking about this question of what I called then constructive realism and then subsequently managed strategic competition. And essentially it's kind of like this. It's not rocket science. I'm, a, I'm an Australian. We don't do rocket science. The, um, but it's just, it's realist, right? There are two ways in which uh, people often think that you can manage deep and destabilizing strategic competition. One is my first diplomatic post when I was a career diplomat was Stocker. Okay. So I love the Scandies. Um, but the idea that you can sprinkle Scandinavian fairy dust over this relationship and only if these two countries really understood each other better, it would all be okay tomorrow morning. No. So the problem is they both think they do understand each other quite well and they don't like what they see. So I'm not into the fairy dust business. Um, I'm into the realist business. So there is a strategic competition underway, but there is no guarding framework for it to which both sides can recourse in order to re-inject stability or equilibrium when you need to. So what I argue in this book under this concept of managed strategic competition is, one, in the five areas of what I describe as strategic red lines as mutually perceived by each side, Taiwan, South China Sea, East China Sea, Korean Peninsula, we often leave that off the list, but I think it's really dangerous still, and, f and five, cyber and space, which I group together even though they are different. Um, right at present, we have unmanaged strategic competition and a rolling exercise of push and shove in each of these domains. Now, in a normal, non-tense environment where there's still lots of what I describe as dip diplomatic insulation around the relationship, you wouldn't mind so much. Bit of push, bit of shove, here are the rules, but we know we're going to stabilise. At present, though, it's unmanaged strategic competition. And if you've observed kids pushing and shoving, sometimes they fall over. And then it's on for young and old. Mm -hmm. um, the analogy I used uh, recently to describe the US-China relationship is right now is a bit like this. 
Picture in your mind's eye, those of you who have um, uh, a father or a grandfather or an uncle with a workshop in the backyard, and your father and grandfather or uncle loves welding, okay? And he's out there uh, and with his uh, uh, a neighbour, uh, uh, they weld every, every afternoon. They just love welding. There's sparks flying everywhere. Except when you look closely on the floor, it's a concrete floor. Um, there is uh, water all over the floor. And you see the cables leading into the welding equipment have no insulation around them at all. In fact, they've been frayed for some years now. And so you ask the question, what could possibly go wrong? Uh, <laughs> interestingly, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi picked up that analogy and used it back at me the other day in the Asia <laughs> Society in the speech the other day. So my problem with unmanaged strategic competition is that's what, where it's happening. So around managed strategic competition, the argument is each side advance in high-level diplomatic negotiations with the other side, what it perceives to be its own bottom line in each of these five category areas. Now, I know and you know as diplomatic practitioners, you'll never get agreement on that because uh, the other side will regard it as irrational. But it's useful to know as opposed to presently establishing the equilibrium point through a voyage of discovery. The second and third elements of the logic of managed strategic competition uh, uh, relatively straightforward, which is in the rest of the relationship beyond those five, you have non-lethal strategic competition in the other domains, consistent with the, the framework of the relationship, which everyone's intellectually acknowledged at the outset. Rest of foreign policy, rest of security policy, trade, investment, technology, the rest, like it's a competition and you're just out there to seek advantage, including on ideology, human mm -hmm. rights and a framework for the future of the international system. And the last category is still carving out sufficient political and diplomatic space for strategic cooperation and collaboration in areas where it's really necessary for yourselves as the two big powers and for the global public good. Climate change, global financial stability, uh, global public health, next pandemic, um, and nuclear nonproliferation. So that's the argument. Mm -hmm. And as I say in the book, it's not perfect. I can poke holes in it myself, but I, my challenge is for someone to come up with something better <laughs> and I haven't heard one yet. I have really just a, two more questions and I'm going to ask the mic runners to get ready and uh, for you to get ready with your questions so we can turn to the audience. Uh, I, I'd like you to now put on your Australia hat and how's the rest of the world seeing this US-China welding competition? Uh, with the frayed wires all over the place. Um, and that may lead to this question of Taiwan and how is the world seeing the possibility of conflict over Taiwan? Well, the rest of the world feels even more anxious than Americans and I think the Chinese feel because we're smaller. Okay. And uh, even though the rest of the world may think they would not necessarily be direct combatants, uh, in a US-China military uh, campaign, which is, means war and killing, by the way. Let's just be very clear about this. These are not clinical terms. It's a lot of death. Um, the rest of the world sees, A, the, uh, a massive global recession, borderline depression, because if you start to do the maths on this, 
the two the world's two largest economies, which between them represent about 35% of global GDP, domestically kind of shutting down, global trade shutting down um, as everything goes onto a war footing. Uh, think what happens to financial markets, what happens to equities markets. The sheer economic impact of this is frightening for large-scale corporations and nation-states. And secondly, for American friends and allies, the question would be what will be asked to do and can we do it? And that will be a question of what then America does in the event of a Chinese military action against Taiwan. Um, and, uh, and therefore, is that a winning plan or a winning strategy? And thirdly, at a much broader level, um, short of war itself, it's um, the paranoia that I see right around the world about people being drawn into a, once again, a binary order. Return to a fear, we're not there yet, that we'll return to a new Cold War, Cold War 2.0. We're not there yet because of the overwhelming size of the economic relationship still. But if I was to summarise the sentiment in Southeast Asia, I think it's that. Northeast Asia, slightly different twist because of proximity to uh, the main theatre, particularly in Japan. South Asia, uh, India's uh, changing somewhat because of their own irresolvable border disputes and frankly making binary decisions of their own. But interestingly, Europe, which is uh, historically saying, I wish you two guys would just get on so that we can just get back to making money uh, in the, uh, the unofficial... European national anthem on China is money, 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 I've got love in my tummy. Um, we'll have a seminar on human rights uh, and security. That's all you guys over there in Asia. Is that about it? That's been my experience of it anyway. Uh, but these guys, the Europeans, interestingly, and you would know this from your own extensive experience, Condi, internationally now and with counterparts, is the, the Europeans are now looking at China's tacit support for Putin and Ukraine and scratching their heads and saying, our assumptions about the China of old probably don't apply anymore. Yeah. And so whether it's Berlin or Paris or London or even amongst the Nordics, what I find is people now really scratching their heads as to what new China strategy they may need. In the developed and developing world, however, the rest of Latin America and the rest of um, Asia and Africa, they don't want a binary order at all because they would feel and are concerned about being squeezed. Mm -hmm. Well, the title of your book uh, definitely begs the question. Uh, the avoidable war does not suggest that it is uh, necessarily something that will happen without action. So how That's do right. we avoid <laughs> war? It didn't say the avoided war. It says the avoidable war. So what does that mean in terms of policy? Particularly, uh, you've, you've uh, very nicely laid out some timelines about Taiwan and so forth, and I just want to come back to that. And uh, please do get your questions ready. We'll come to you right after uh, this answer. I think um, a part of the reason for the title is that my good friend and colleague from Harvard, Graham Allison, wrote Destined for War in 2015, which is all about Thucydides' trap. You know, there's a big academic debate about that. It really has had an effect, I think, on the way in both which Chinese and American policy elites think about the trajectory on which they can be on, which they are possibly on, which is we are destined for war, competing ideological systems, one power seeking to replace each other, 
uh, Athens, Sparta, you know, all the analogies in history, etc. And so I felt some, uh, frankly, necessary burden to say uh, to my friend and colleague Graham, here is a response, which is mm. we ain't destined for anything. I'm not a historical determinist. I believe in agency. Um, and that's why I have argued that, uh, that it's avoidable. Secondly, my judgment, at least for the rest of this decade, is that neither the United States nor China want a war over Taiwan because they have both looked into that abyss, they've stared over the edge and said that's a long way down and it contains within it a whole bunch of uh, unknowable risks. So therefore the challenge for the 2020s, in my judgment, is this. How do you reduce the risk of war by accident? And that is what managed strategic competition is all about. It provides guardrails, the term I use, strategic guardrails around these five strategic red lines and a framework for the risks of the dimensions of the relationship. But the other part of the jigsaw then is this, and people legitimately say, yeah, but what about, Kevin, if you believe that Xi Jinping regards the 2030s as a more optimal time for China to take military action to secure Taiwan, which is currently my belief, based on what the evidence that I see, um, then what's going to stop him then? So the answer to that is the second part of the equation, which is the US and Taiwan and allies have to engage now in a radical investment in believable deterrence over Taiwan. Taiwanese defence in itself, um, its military structure and capabilities, its, its ability to develop an effective porcupine strategy, mindful of what's unfolded in Ukraine, uh, together with um, the United States uh, providing sufficient uh, military equipment and the rest uh, and arms to Taiwan under the Taiwan Relations Act uh, in a manner which will upset the Chinese, but you've been doing it for years anyway. Um, uh, and that way, by the time you hit the 2030s, there is still there is an enhanced risk on Xi Jinping's part when he looks at Taiwan and the chair of the military commission in Beijing comes in and says, vice chair of the military commission comes in and says, this is still too risky, we could lose. And the first chapter, first paragraph of Swinzer's Art of War, which every Chinese political leader has read, is war is a great matter of state, never to be undertaken lightly. If you lose the war, you lose the state. Mm. So it is increasing the risk calculus on the part of the Chinese system, both financially, economically, but critically militarily, that I think we've got six or seven years to play with. So that's kind of how the logical bits fit together in this. Yes. All right, we'll turn to the audience uh, now. So I'm going to move this way so that I don't, right here on the, the left. Yes. And, and uh, may I ask if you just identify yourself and please brief questions because we have a lot of people who want to ask questions. Okay, thank you for you guys. A very luminous speech. I am Zun from China and currently a master's student at Center of East Asian Studies in Stanford. So I want, I have a question for both of you. So do you think that next administration of China, which will um, um, ex uh, which will get public in about 10 days, will ca carry out transformation back to developing the private sector instead of the public sector when understanding that development of economy is fundamentally important to support the United States. Thank you. Thank you. 
Just a quick answer on that. Um, Xi Jinping's economic policy advisors will be saying to him now, we need to course correct back towards the market to rebuild economic growth. Secondly, ideologically, Xi Jinping's gonna find that very difficult to do because it will run against the core ideological resolution of the 19th Party Congress five years ago in 2017. So what's the likely outcome? I think the likely outcome is one of muddling through. You're gonna have a Congress communique in my judgment, which will continue to reinforce the importance of Marxism, Leninism, state and party control, more common prosperity and possibly some new Renminjingji, people's economy, something I hadn't heard since the 1950s until recently. And on the other hand, you're going to have a series of injunctions to the new economic team to get the economy going by enhancing uh, uh, state investment in the economy and and harnessing again, somehow mysteriously, the enthusiasm of the private sector. So it's not going to be a return to Maoism, but it's not going to be a return to Dungism either. It, in my judgment, will be muddling through, but that doesn't restore 6% growth. Might get you to 4% growth, but it doesn't get you to 6 They'll try and finally finesse that by crab walking out of the current so-called dynamic zero COVID arrangements. And that will be done through a series of trials based on the Hong Kong model starting in November, I believe. Bob. I'm okay. Bob King is my name. Uh, given the war in Ukraine and the relationship between China and Russia, what's the probability that Z can prevent Putin from using a nuclear bomb? Um, This is beyond my pay grade. <laughs> and I'm sitting next to someone who's an expert in the old Soviet Union, the modern Russia, and that's Condi. So I'll just say something really dumb and then throw it to Condi. <laughs> uh, and that is, um, there is no way in the world that Xi Jinping within the Chinese political system, domestically, let alone internationally, could justify Xi Jinping, uh, justify Vladimir Putin using a tactical nuclear weapon. Secondly, it is my view in the absence of any evidence available to me, but it's my view that the Chinese will have communicated this military to military to the Russians in the course of the last several months, not just the last several weeks. And thirdly, my conclusion is it is highly improbable as a result, uh, quite apart from other factors pertaining to the use of tactical nuclear weapons like which way is the wind blowing? Do they work? Because they've been in storage since, you know, since the Battle of Trafalgar. Uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, they've been around for a long time. Yeah, You've got to dust them, dust them off, you know, and see if, see if they're still operational. Um, and, uh, and thirdly, um, what will actually be the uh, nature of the American retaliatory response, which the National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan has already spoken about? and in my judgment, effectively and publicly. Uh, so put all that together, I think a combination of a genuine fear in the Russian system about the nature of the response from the United States and NATO, plus the Chinese saying, no way, Jose, in Chinese, not in Spanish, <laughs> um, that uh, I reckon uh, I'm on the sceptical side. Yeah. Madam uh, Secretary? Uh, outstanding summary, uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> No, I agree completely, and I, I also think that uh, 
if Vladimir Putin really wants to be a pariah with everybody, uh, that would seal it. Um, given, and I, I think the other points are probably even more, uh, more salient. Can but I have uh, one can you even imagine? Yes, yeah. right. A little footnote, which, given you've raised Ukraine and and uh, Vladimir the Impaler, the um, uh, let's just say the Russian military move against Putin. This is highly speculative, but. You don't have to be a Rhodes Scholar to work out that things are not going well in the Ukraine from a Russian perspective. Um, secondly, the conscription, mass conscription of uh, Russian uh, men is not going well. And thirdly, um, oligarchs seem to be falling out of windows regularly. Yes, they're, they're quite clumsy, aren't they? They're falling very out clumsy. Of windows. There's a window. Whoops, falling yeah. out again. <laughs> Gonski. And... Um, uh, and so put all this together, and again, I have no expertise in Russian domestic politics. China, I have a feel for. Russia, I don't. So therefore, this is a pure hypothesis. If Putin is forced to resign or is actually physically taken out, this would have a reverberating effect back into the Chinese political system. That's the simple point I wanted to leave with you. Not sufficient to cause Xi Jinping uh, to fall politically, but it would be disempowering and, I think, affect his um, ability comfortably to discharge leadership as he currently sees it without uh, rolling correction from his colleagues. Yeah. It would be such a dramatic event. Yes. In the Russia-China relationship has such an historical importance from the lens of Beijing. It's just worth reflecting on that sidebar for the moment. Sorry. I do have to say things are going in a very bizarre fashion. Two Russian men have shown up in Alaska and asked for asylum, which is a rather strange turn. But I want to know what was Sarah Palin's response? (laughs) (laughs) That she could always see it. Yes. All right. Yes. Right here in the middle. Yes. Hi, my name is Ava Zhao. Um, just a quick question. Since you mentioned deterrence uh, towards the end of your talk, I recently learned about the silicon deterrence, whereby um, I think 90% of the world's semiconductors are made in Taiwan. And uh, apparently there's some discussion thinking that because, um, because of that, uh, China would be foolish uh, to attack Taiwan and destroy the world's economy. I just wanted to get your thoughts on that and whether it's a legitimate um, deterrence. I think um, it's important to be um, rational in our analysis of TSMC, the Taiwan Semiconductor Corporation, uh, role in terms of the supply of global uh, microchips, uh, those which are the most advanced in the world, which they currently do. Um, and the current you know, technology threshold within TSMC is between three and six nanometers. So this is, and they are at the cutting edge. You've got to admire what this corporation has done, mm-hmm. by the way. Just remarkable. Talk about the success of the Taiwanese economy. I mean, this just grew out of an electronics industry yeah. over 20 years. Just remarkable. Anyway, um, you hear arguments that this will either cause China to take Taiwan in order to get a hold of the TSMC gear, uh, which is simply, in my judgment, a fallacious argument. Um, And there's a reason for that is that there's multiple contingency planning underway to deal with that in the event of a Chinese action. 
you just don't arrive one day with the Chinese equivalent of the 82nd Airborne and then control TSMC's fabrication facility. It's not like that. And on the reverse logic, that China would never do it uh, because it would destroy the world's supply of semiconductors, I think a similar corrective needs to be in mind that there is a strategy now in the United States and with its major partners and allies over time to achieve a much greater globally diffuse semiconductor source of supply. It'll take some time, but already TSMC, based on my information, is locating FAB here, um, and you'll see that with some of the other advanced uh, chip manufacturers, partly off the back of this new uh, CHIPS Act to the United States Congress. Right, and if, and if uh, Kevin, if you're right about the timeline here of the 20s, mm. uh, the, the uh, semiconductor landscape could look quite different in mm. 10 years than it looks, looks now. Uh, yes. Oh, okay. Thank you. I'm Nandini Tandon. I'm a venture capitalist investing in healthcare. My question is, given the convergence of incentives of the Quad countries, Australia being one of them also, how effective do you think these four countries can be in that region to ensure that America does remain the number one? And I also want to say I can't wait to read your book, given your brilliant sense of humor and deep understanding. And thank you, Secretary, for hosting this. Yes. And, and the four countries you mean of the Quad, is that? Of the Quad. Of the, the quad. quad. Of the yes. Quad, yes. Uh, Australia, India. Yes, yes. yes. The Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, for those of you not familiar with the debate, is the United States, of course, uh, Japan, India, and uh, Australia. Um, I think the thing to understand clearly about the Quad is it's not a military alliance. And the members of the Quad describe it, it as a um, strategic uh, collaboration framework. But what's remarkable about the Quad as it's unfolded um, over the last year or two um, is the range of activities it's now embracing in terms of uh, technology and uh, s secure sources of uh, technology supply, including what we we're just talking about as far as semiconductors. Secondly, energy, uh, and a whole range of other uh, domains as well, quite apart from classic foreign policy coordination. Um, so it's, it's in a state of evolution, and I think those who have framed the Quad have done a highly intelligent job of it, of it because it is designed to be elastic over time. Second point I'd make is our Ch Chinese friends have been shocked that this thing came into being because their assumption was... Look at Delhi and look at Tokyo, for example. Where is the natural worldview or commonality of interest between the two? Of course, there's an answer to that. It's called China. Um, but the Chinese historical assumption has been that the divisions between the Quad countries are of such an order of magnitude that if this thing could only ever exist on paper and not in reality. But I think China radically underestimated the extent to which its own actions in pushing the strategic envelope on the Sino-Indian border, in the South China Sea, in the East China Sea, uh, punitive trade actions against Australia because an Australian Prime Minister, uh, one of the conservative Australian Prime Ministers, called for a global independent inquiry into the origins of COVID-19. Put all that together, you create sufficient momentum out of Chinese wolf warrior diplomacy writ large um, and military strategy writ large to cause otherwise disparate actors to coalesce. Right. The final point of the logic, I think, is what does it do in reality? 
I've noticed the Chinese reaction has gone from being dismissive to being concerned to being abusive about it, which usually indicates that people are concerned. Um, and what it does as a question of strategic reality is that it provides the countries of Southeast Asia in particular with greater freedom of strategic manoeuvre because there's almost like a band of uh, strategic robustness now surrounding them geopolitically and geographically. And so therefore, rather than feeling that you're just being sucked into the Sinosphere, you actually have a countervailing force and against the overall logic of the balance of power. And the open questions are, does it become a quint with the Republic of Korea? Huge debates between Seoul and Tokyo over that, because Japan's not so sure. Uh, and does it end up being a sextet? So our friends in Ottawa have indicated that they're interested in joining as well. So this is evolving in a quite dynamic uh, fashion, but I think on balance is stabilising. Yes, sir. I have time, unfortunately, for just one more question. I've not gone to that side. I'm going to go to the, yes, you. Hi. Uh, so, sorry, let me get off. Um, so last year, uh, Jack Ma went missing after he gave a speech that, as I remember it, was fragrantly um, against China's current economic system. Um, do you think Xi Jinping is more adamant on reeling in billionaires after this very public display of infidelity uh, towards China's economic system? If this is our last question, I just want to say two other things before I go to the questions. Just to acknowledge all of our men and women in uniform, I can see up the back. Thank you for your service. And um, I see two other people wearing uniforms in this room who are wearing my campaign T-shirt from an election which I won. Uh, <laughs> Kevin 07, you see, so you get the uh, order of Kevin later on. <laughs> um, just to conclude, Connie, on the, question of, uh, on the question of, given what's happened with the billionaire class, can he rebuild confidence on the part of the private sector? I think that's the essence of the question. Thank you for nodding. The, um, uh, I think it's a tricky old business. The reason I say that is that the private sector in China is not hugely different to the private sector anywhere else. Like, they are phenomenally creative, full of entrepreneurs, enormous work ethic, a savings ethic, um, and that's why they've been so phenomenally excess successful. I mean, what's achieved by the private sector and Chinese tech? Uh, just look at what's happening with the digital commerce revolution through the combination of Alibaba and Ant Financial and all the rest of it was breathtaking or, in a matter of a TikTok. decade. <laughs> TikTok, you know, just uh, and on it goes. So you look at this and you say, this is just extraordinary. And Jack Ma, who I've known for a very long time, became the hero of this generation and other generations of Chinese entrepreneurs saying, I could be like that, you know. And Jack Ma, very poor background. Uh, Jack Ma uh, lined up outside the Australian embassy in 1985 uh, for four days asking for a tourist visa to travel to Australia to spend a month in a language school uh, with a pen pal he'd made in Australia. And he'd been learning his English off Radio Australia's English language broadcasts, which is why Jack's English is a bit strange. And so uh, 
So uh, it's Chinese with an Australian accent. Think about it. The, um, so here is a guy who was just so determined to succeed that he did all of that and earned the admiration of the world, not just Chinese people. Okay, just the admiration of the world. You think, how, how do you do that? So the idea that you can in any political culture, any system anywhere in the world, simply say, sprinkle fairy dust and say, forget about all that stuff. Forget about the fact that um, uh, there have been a series of punishments meted out to this group of people. Forget about the fact that we're now changing the rules about the Chinese tech sector. Uh, forget about the fact that we're attacking, we're attacking private sector tech monopolies, but we're leaving public sector monopolies in place. And forget about the fact that we've just said that if you're a really successful firm, you will now spontaneously donate $12 billion to your local favourite charity. Forget about all of that because it's all over and we really do love you. What do you think the response would be the next morning? Unlikely to be hugely positive. So there is a counter-narrative, and I'll finish on this, Condi. When I say this to Chinese regulators, um, and I've got many friends in the Chinese system because I've been in and out of the country now for, God, 35 years, um, they say, yeah, but for every one of those billionaires who, who they say to me are unhappy with us, there are literally tens of thousands of Chinese millionaires who want to earn tens or hundreds of millions of renminbi but not become the world's biggest billionaires. In other words, there's plenty of others uh, in the system wanting to do the same. We're just not going to allow them to become that big. I'm not sure that works. It's a qualitative judgment. I don't have a database for it. But the proof will be in the pudding. That is, what happens after this Congress? There will be statements made, political statements, to reassure the private sector. You will see appointments to the new Premier's position, the Vice Premier's responsible for the economy, which may have uh, pro-market folks there. But if you've got this recent collective memory, which you've just referred to in your question, plus an ideological overhang which says uh, we are Marxist-Leninists, true and blue, then I'm not sure that the animal spirits are going to be easily reconjured within that system. So I think we're looking at suboptimal Chinese growth, that's too early to say that we've reached peak China and that therefore the model is broken. But I think the model now is under great duress. Kevin, thank you. Please join me in thanking uh, the Honorable Kevin Rudd for a really stimulating uh, conversation, but also go and buy his book, The Avoidable War. <laughs> thank you very much. Kevin.